0: As a child, one of the books that I loved to look at when I went to my granny's house was a book that was put out by Reader's Digest in 1989, and the title was Strange Stories, Amazing Facts of America's Past. And the book had these short little stories, usually a paragraph or two, on history of little-known people or subjects related to American history. And one of those little blurbs dealt with a man named John Hansen. John Hanson was a Maryland man born in Port Tobacco, Maryland, and lived during the American Revolutionary time and served in the Continental Congress. And this article pointed out that, in a way, John Hanson was our first president in that he was president under uh, the Articles of Confederation, which was what our nation was under prior to the United States Constitution. But the truth of the matter is even more complicated than that. Under the Articles of Confederation, there was no executive branch of government prescribed as in the Constitution. And so clearly, the first head of the executive branch of our government was George Washington. And, as a point of fact, John Hanson was actually not the first president of the Congress under the Articles of Confederation. But he was the first one, however, to serve the prescribed year-long term. He served from late 1781 into late 1782. And so, who was the first president of the United States? Well, it depends on what you mean. In the sense, usually meant by the question, you'd usually be right to say George Washington. But it's also true that prior to the Constitution and the creation of the executive branch of governments, there were presidents. Sort of. There were presidents of the Congress under the Articles of Confederation, and even prior to that, there were presidents of the Continental Congress. So, enough about presidents. Let's talk about Kings. Who was the first king of Israel? Well, in the sense usually met by that question, you would be right to say Saul in the book of 1 Samuel. But there was a king in Israel before Saul. Now, two weeks ago, we saw the ambiguity in regard to the way in which Gideon had declined or perhaps with reservation accepted the offer to rule over Israel. But whatever ambiguities may have been in place with Gideon were not in place with his son Abimelech, whose name means my father is king. Abimelech clearly wanted to be king and actually was made king. And so tonight we'll be turning our attention to Judges chapter 9. And in this chapter we have a sad sequel to the life of Gideon. And we saw two weeks ago at the end of chapter 8 the snare of the ephod which Gideon had made and how by it Israel was led away from the true worship of God, at least so far as to go into superstition, if not into outright idolatry. And if they had not degenerated into idolatry by the time of Gideon's death, they certainly did after his death, as found in those sad verses at the closing of chapter 8. And so before we get to chapter 9, let's look to, uh, to chapter 8, verses 33 through 35. Uh, then it came about as soon as Gideon was dead, the sons of Israel played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Barith their god. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Nor did they show kindness to the household of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in accord with all the good that he had done to Israel." Uh, the saying has been said, and has been applied to Gideon, and I think rightly so, that the evil which men do lives after them. the good is oft interred with their bones, so it was with Gideon, in that we might remember Gideon as a good as a good judge who delivered his people, but the people who came immediately after him did not remember uh, favorably the good that he had done, but rather turned aside to idolatry and uh, as we'll see, some were compliant in the murder of his sons. And so let's look then to our text for tonight, which is Judges chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and spoke to them, to the whole clan of the household of his mother's father, saying, Speak now in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that seventy men All the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one man rule over you. Also remember that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem, and they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our relative. They gave him seventy pieces of silver from the house of baal which, uh, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows, and they followed him. Then he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. All the men of Shechem and all Beth Milo assembled together, and they went and made Abimelech the king by the oak of the pillar which was in Shechem. Now when they told Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and called out, Thus he said to them, Listen to me, O men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Once the trees went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Rain over us. But The olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my fatness with which God and men are honored and go to wave over the trees? Then the tree said to the fig tree, You come, reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go to wave over the trees? Then the trees said to the vine, You come, reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my new wine, which cheers God and men, and go to wave over the trees? Finally all of the trees said to the bramble, You come, reign over us. The bramble said to the trees, If in truth you are anointing me as king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, may fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you have dealt in truth and integrity in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house, and have dealt with him as he deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. But you have risen against my father's house today and have killed his son, 70 men, on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his maidservant, king over the men of Shechem, because he is your relative." If then you have dealt in truth and integrity with Jerob and his house this day, rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech, and consume the men of Shechem and Bethmilo, and let fire come out from the men of Shechem and from Bethmilo, and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham escaped and fled, and went to Beer, and remained there because of Abimelech his brother. Now Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years, then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem, and the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, so that the violence done to the seventy sons of Jerubbaal might come, and their blood might be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. The men of Shechem set men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed all who might pass by them along the road. And it was told to Abimelech. Now Gael, the son of Ebed, came with his relatives and crossed over into Shechem. And the men of Shechem put their trust in him. They went out to the field and gathered the grapes of the vineyards and trod them and held the festival. And they went into the house of their god and ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. Then Gael, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech and who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jeroboam and is Zebel not his lieutenant? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should you serve him? Would, therefore, that this people were under my authority, then I would remove Abimelech. And he said to Abimelech, Increase your army and come out. When Zebel, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gael, the son of Ebed, his anger burned. He sent messengers to Abimelech, deceitfully saying, Behold, Gael, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem. And behold, they are stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, arise by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. In the morning, as soon as the sun is up, you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And behold, when he and the people who are with him shall come out against you, you shall do to them whatever you can. So Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose up by night And lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. Now Gale, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the city gate, and Abimelech and the people who were with him arose from the ambush. When Gale saw the people, he said to Zebel, Look, the people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zebel said to him, You are seeing the shadow of the mountains as if they were men. Gale spoke again and said, Behold, People are coming down from the highest part of the land, and one company comes by way of the diviner's oak. Then Zebel said to him, "Where's your boasting now?" With which you said, "Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Is this not the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them." So Gael went and fought with the leaders uh, fought, excuse me, went out before the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. Abimelech chased him. And when he fled before him, many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. Then Abimelech remained at Aruma, but Zebal drove out Gael and his relatives so that they could not remain in Shechem. Now it came about the next day that the people went out to the field, and it was told to Abimelech. So he took his people and divided them into three companies and lay in wait in the field. When he looked and saw the people coming out from the city, He arose against them and slew them. Then Abimelech and the company who was with him dashed forward and stood in the entrance of the city gate, and the other two companies then dashed against all who were in the field and slew them. Abimelech fought against the city all that day, and he captured the city and killed the people who were in it. Then he razed the city and sowed it with salt. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the inner chamber of the temple of el Barith. And it was told Abimelech that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. So Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him, and Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a branch from the trees and lifted it and laid it on his shoulder. Then he said to the people who were with him, what you have seen me do, hurry and do likewise. All the people also cut down each one his branch and followed Abimelech and put them "...on the inner chamber, and set the inner chamber on fire over those inside, so that all the men of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes, and he camped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower in the center of the city, and all the men and women, with all the leaders of the city, fled there and shut themselves in, and went up on the roof of the tower." So Abimelech came up to the tower and fought against it, and approached the entrance of the tower to burn it with fire. But a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his skull. Then he called quickly to his young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, so that it will not be said of me. A woman slew him. So the young man pierced him through, and he died. When the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, each departed to his home. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father in killing his seventy brothers. Also God returned all the wickedness of the men of Shechem on their heads, and the curse of Jotham, son of Jeroboam, came upon them. Now in this chapter that we've just read, we see the absolute chaos and instability of wickedness, and we also see the providential governance and judgment of God In this world. And so we'll consider this text under those two main headings. First, we see the chaos and instability of wickedness. This man, Abimelech, to put it briefly, was a mess. He was the son of Gideon's concubine, who was from Shechem, and after the death of his father, he goes back to his mother's hometown, speaks to his mother's relatives, and asks for them to put in a good word for him with the powers that be. In Shechem. And this was the question he was to put before them, whether it's better to have 70 rulers, the other 70 sons of Gideon ruling over them, or centralized authority, just one of them. The leaders of Shechem listened to the relatives of Abimelech, and they were inclined to follow him. He is, after all, a son of one of their native women from the town. And As a sort of earnest money, you might say they give him 70 pieces of silver from the house of their god Baal-Bareth, which means Lord of the Covenant. And it's difficult to know for sure whether the fact that they gave him 70 pieces of silver is simply a coincidence or whether there is any correspondence to the fact that he had 70 men whom he was going to kill. It may, may simply be a coincidence but it is a fact of the account that makes you scratch your head a little bit and makes you raise your eyebrows once or twice. Seventy pieces of silver, seventy men to kill. Any connection? Hard to say. But nevertheless, Abimelech takes the money, hires the thugs, kills his brother in a judicially murderous sort of way. These men were were executed, right? There's There's this one stone. They were all killed right there on that one stone, all except for the youngest brother, Jotham, who gets away. And after this, the men of Shechem and Beth Milo assemble, and they make him king. Beth Milo was probably uh, probably a a fortress area there, either in Shechem or close to him. And in, in making him king, we shouldn't understand him to be king over all of Israel, as it seems that he was kind of a much more localized king. It wasn't all of Israel that united in in making him king, and therefore he probably wasn't reigning over all of Israel, but simply over this this area there by Shechem and Beth Milo. But they did make him king, nevertheless. And in one of the ironies of history, they made him king, as we see there in verse 6, at the oak of the pillar which was in Shechem. At the end of the book of Joshua, Shechem was the place at which Joshua had his last recorded meeting with the leaders of the people. And it was at that meeting that the people committed themselves to serve the Lord and entered into a covenant to do so. Joshua had said, you guys are not going to be able to do it. And they said, we will follow the Lord. And so we read in Joshua 24, 24 through 26, The people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and will obey his voice. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Now both of these events happened in the same town. They both happen in Shechem. Both of these events make reference to an oak and it may well be that this, uh, that this oak of the pillar is in reference, the, the pillar there, reference might be in reference to the, the monument that was set up there by, uh, by Joshua, where Joshua took this large stone and set it up under the oak. Maybe it's the same tree, maybe not. Maybe the pillar in Judges chapter 9 is referring back to this stone that Joshua set up. It's hard to be for sure. But either way, this situation is very ironic. And it demonstrates the degree to which Israel had fallen away from truth and from righteousness. At the place where they committed to follow the Lord, generations later, they set up a king for themselves who had just committed mass murder against his physical brothers. And then after this, we have Jotham, the lone survivor of the sons of Gideon. He stands on Mount Gerizim and tells, uh, tells them this, this fable of the, uh, the trees. Uh, seeking someone to rule over them and then issues a curse. Now, a fable is a story that is con- intended to convey a moral. And I think, I think the moral here is chiefly found in the worthlessness of the bramble and in the folly of the trees who have this desire to make such a worthless one king over them. They, these trees seem to want a king at any cost, right? They, they work, down, work down through the list And uh, so they have the olive tree, the fig tree, they have the vine. No takers on the kingship. We just need a king. And so finally they reach out to this bramble. They don't care. They just want a king. And Jotham's comments after the fable there in verses 16 through 20 make it very clear that Abimelech is the bramble and that the people of Shechem are the foolish trees. And in another great irony of this story, it was from... Mount Gerizim, that Jotham issued this curse now Mount Gerizim was the mountain from which blessings were pronounced back when uh, in the, in the days of deuteronomy when when Moses had some of the tribes over on Mount Gerizim, some I believe it was Mount Ebal on the other side, and, and the blessings and the curses were to be pronounced. The blessings were coming from Mount Gerizim. Now we have Jotham uttering a curse upon the people of Shechem if they had not dealt with integrity in making Abimelech king. And, of course, they did not deal in integrity. And uh, that curse is found there in verse 20. Let fire come out from Abimelech and consume the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and consume Abimelech. This is a curse of mutual destruction. And by the working of God, this curse came upon them as the subsequent narrative and uh, culminating in verse 27, all makes, or excuse me, verse 57, all makes clear. Now before we move on to consider this, this issue of the chaos and instability of wickedness, let's, let's pause here for just a moment and glean a lesson here about choosing leaders. These people had just chosen a king as king, a man who had killed his 70 brothers this was a man who, in expressing his desire to be their king, had actually appealed to their ties of kinship. Hey, we're, we're relatives. What were they thinking? How did they think this was going to end? A man who would kill 70 brothers appeals to them, Hey, we're, we're blood, blood relatives. You might as well have me as your king. How did they think this was going to turn out? Now, let's take from this a lesson and learn the importance here of picking leaders wisely. There's reason why the Lord gave us instructions as to what kind of men we should choose to be elders in the church. Generally uh, generally speaking, people who display certain characteristics before coming into a given office will usually continue to display those characteristics after coming into that office. And so if we choose a wicked man to be an elder... There can be terrible consequences. The same thing applies when choosing a spouse. Women who are choosing a husband are choosing a leader for themselves. And it's not going to turn out well if they choose someone who is wicked and irresponsible. One writer expressed it well when he said, Those least fit to lead are most ambitious to rule, and the populace are too often ready to court such as their leaders. How true is that? Those least fit to lead are often ambitious to rule, and the populace run to them and celebrate them, lift them up, and choose them. Now, as this chapter continues, we see the chaos and instability of wickedness. Everything comes unraveled, right? There's a three-year reign, and then bad blood develops between Abimelech and Shechem. Verse 25, we see the, the people of Shechem setting up men. In ambush on the mountains, perhaps to assault and capture or kill him directly if they had a chance, or at the very least to stir up trouble, kind of marauding, robbing, terrorizing those who passed by as a sign that they, the people of Shechem, are completely disregarding the authority of Abimelech. Verse 26, we're introduced to this outsider, Gael, the son of Ebed, who comes to Shechem and brings his relatives with him. We don't know where he's from, but he shows up and brings his clan into town, and he exploits the divide there that's already in existence between Abimelech on the one side the men of Shechem on the other. The men of Shechem trust in him, and Gael becomes a wedge that drives Abimelech and the men of Shechem further apart from one another. And at the great the grape harvest and the drinking party that follows, Gael shoots his mouth off about wanting to be in charge himself and be rid of Abimelech, and Zebel, who rules the city for Abimelech, hears about it, sends word to Abimelech, and before you know, the fight is on. Round one of the fight is described in verses 34 to 41. Abimelech divides his men there into four companies, wait out in the dark in this ambush, and Gael and Zebel uh, are there as the sun is coming up, and they see and discuss the situation. And uh, when Gael is, is convinced that What he sees are men. Zebul mocks him for his inebriated boasting, with which he had boasted. He says, where is your boasting now, with which you said, who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Is this not the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. And so Gael went out and fought and took a beating, retreated back into town. According to verse 41, Abimelech seems to have returned to where he was for uh, for the night and to wait for another opportunity on the next day before taking the fight to the Shechemites. And meanwhile, back in Shechem, Zebul, the commander of the city, was able to exert enough muscle to get Gael and his relatives out of Shechem. And then the next day, we're told... Uh, verse 42, that the people of Shechem went out to the field. It's not entirely clear what they were going out for, whether to uh, to fight or perhaps just to simply carry out their agricultural labors out in the field. Whatever the purpose was, didn't work out well. Abimelech is there ready to take the fight to them. The uh, company that was with him went up against the city and fought it. And The other two of his companies slew the people out in the field. In the end, they captured the city that day, destroyed it, Sowed it with salt, which was a sign of his intense animosity toward the city and his desire that it should never be rebuilt again. That's round two of the fight. Then round three is fought with the leaders of the city who took refuge in the temple of their god Elbereth, and Abimelech killed a thousand of them by gathering these green branches and catching the inner chamber of that temple on fire. And then next came Thebes, a town nearby. After he'd captured the city, the people go into the tower, and then he's thinking, well, let's just do the same thing that we did back in Shechem. And so uh, he's wanting to start a fire and smoke them out, and meanwhile, some woman who had somehow had an upper millstone up there just drops it over the edge, or perhaps lobs it over the edge, and bang, right on his head it went. My predecessor... Uh, brilliantly likened this to being hit in the head with a toaster right? it 's a small small kitchen kitchen implement. My guess is the, the upper millstone was probably heavier than a toaster, uh, but nevertheless, um, being being dropped on someone 's head toaster or upper millstone could likely prove to be quite harmful and After that, we see that this guy is concerned about the optics, right? This is is not going to look good in the history books. He doesn't want to be seen as the man who was killed by a woman, the man who got killed by a kitchen implement thrown over the wall. And so he asks his armor bearer to finish, finish the job so that it could not be said that a woman killed him. And the armor bearer complied. Yet for all of that concern, it didn't go well with Abimelech's memory. David remembered the woman and not the armor bearer as the one who killed him. And so we find King David's account of this, 2 Samuel eleven twenty one. 21. He said, Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerob-Besheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? And so uh, David knows his history well, and he's crediting the death with the woman and not with the armor-bearer. Now it was said of Pope Boniface VIII and has been applied to Abimelech, and you can understand why, that he came in like a fox, he reigned like a lion, and died like a dog. This is the man Abimelech. According to verse 55, the death of Abimelech brought peace. When the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, each departed to his home. This story is of the chaos and instability of wickedness. Wickedness runs Wild and ultimately falls apart. This man Abimelech had a desire to rule. He was willing to do whatever it took to do that. He started by murdering his relatives on his father's side and ended by killing the people of his mother's hometown. And uh, then one of the locals finally finished him off. And in the meantime, there is a, an extremely large body count. The only figure that we're given. far as numbers is these 1,000 people who died in the temple of El-Bareth. And that's as we were counting them in the third round of the fighting against Shechem. We don't know how many bodies there were on the ground after the first round and after the second round. How many bodies were on the ground there at Thebes before he was killed? There was bloodshed and wickedness all throughout. And wickedness is like this. It is unsustainable. And eventually, wickedness turns around, and eats in on itself. And and we see something similar going on even in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 17, regarding the relationship between the harlot Babylon the Great and the beast upon which she sits. Now, the harlot Babylon the Great seems to be, uh, in the book of Revelation, a personification of the idolatrous and economic and religious system of the world. And Revelation 17 describes her as sitting on a scarlet beast. And the beast seems to be representative of the state, which is in rebellion against God, and seems to correspond to the first beast of Revelation chapter 13. And in the end, though there is an alliance for a time, in the end, this evil alliance between the beast and the harlot does not last. And so we're told in Revelation 17, 16, that eventually the ten horns and the beast turn on and hate the harlot that they make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her up with fire eventually evil self destructs and turns in against itself and the reason is given in revelation 17:17 17, 17, for god has put it into the hearts to into their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of god will be fulfilled All along, God was in control of the evil and was using it for his purposes. But the wickedness itself was chaotic and unstable. And when all the stops are pulled out and it is allowed to run wild, it becomes unsustainable and can only last for so long. And we should count that as God's mercy to us, that this kind of wickedness wears itself out and uh, is not sustainable in the long term. And that brings us to our second point, which is the providential governance and judgment of God in the world. One commentator, I think, was on to something when he said that the true key of history, amidst much that is dark, sad, and mysterious, is this. God reigning in righteousness by his secret and veiled providence, overruling men's crooked policy in spite of themselves, To further God's purposes and thereby giving an earnest of his coming judgment of the world in manifestly revealed equity. And this seems to be the Lord's purpose in the narrative of this chapter. He was punishing Israel for their idolatry by raising up an internal adversary against them and then punishing that adversary and his supporters by turning them against each other. Most of the adversaries in the book of Judges are external adversaries, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Moabites, and so on. But now the Lord raised up one from their own nation. This was a scourge upon them because of their sins. And then the fallout between Abimelech and the men of Shechem is explicitly said to be because of the wickedness of Abimelech in murdering his brother's and also because the men of Shechem strengthened Abimelech's hand to do that. Notice how the writer frames what happens here, before and after. And so look to look to verses 23 and 24. It says, Then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem, and the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, so that the violence done to the seventy sons of Jeroboam might come, and their blood might be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And then notice how the chapter ends in verses 56 and 57. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father in killing his 70 brothers. Also God returned all the wickedness of the men of Shechem on their own heads, and the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal, came upon them. The point is, God judges wickedness. God even judges the wickedness, of those themselves who are raised up to serve as judges of the wicked in a sort. And so Abimelech is, uh, is raised up to, to execute judgment on Israel because of their idolatry, but because of his wickedness and the wickedness of those who collude with him, they find each other and are both thus judged for their wickedness. Now sometimes the judgment of God is worked out temporally in time here, In this world, and we see such here in our passage, other times the wickedness of man is not punished until later. The lesson to learn here, though, is that God judges the wicked. Sometimes he judges them by allowing them to eat of the fruit of their own wickedness, even here in this world, and by allowing their wickedness to come on their own heads, even here in this world. And when it happens, it's ugly. So let's learn from this, the terrible fruit of sin, and learn from this to turn away from wickedness, lest the words of Jeremiah 2.19 could be applied to us. Your own wickedness will correct you, and your apostasies will reprove you. Know therefore that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God, and the dread of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. And as we see the, the wickedness and the evil of this king Abimelech, Let's rejoice in our king, Jesus Christ, and submit gladly to him. If Abimelech's throne was founded by smooth talk and fratricide, the murder of his brothers, characterized by a love of wickedness all throughout, and was temporary, only lasting three years, and ended in his violent death, We are told something far different concerning Christ and his kingdom, as we find in Hebrews 1, 8 and 9, which is quoting Psalm 45, 6 and 7. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Christ's throne is forever. He loves righteousness and hates wickedness. And far from regarding his brothers as enemies and murders them, Christ takes his enemies and makes them his brothers and makes them fellow heirs with him. Instead of violent, he is gentle and humble in heart. He is the opposite of everything we are told here about this man, Abimelech. So let's rejoice in Christ and submit to him as king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth that it speaks to us about evil historical facts and even the nature of evil itself. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the fruit of wickedness. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to fear you, to flee from sin and to submit ourselves to our great and righteous King. Jesus Christ. We pray that in seeing such great wickedness, we would rejoice in the great righteousness of Christ, and the righteous scepter of his kingdom. We give praise and we give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.